You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm Nicole, a member of the committee staff, and I'm here today with national security attorneys here as individuals and not on behalf of their agencies or firms. Hi, I'm Elisa, the co-host here of National Security Law Today. We're here today to deliver part two of our important retrospective podcast on the Hanafi Muslim siege, one of the most significant terror events that ever occurred in the District of Columbia, but which has been forgotten outside of the city. Our guests today are again Matt Tui, a partner at Baker Hostetler, who was an assistant U.S. attorney at the District of Columbia at the time of the siege, and Pat Collins, a legendary news reporter who was working at Channel 9 during the siege. To hear all of the details, go back and listen to last week's episode, which was part one of our conversation. Now, we're going to give you a quick overview of this case because in the memory of people who handled it, uh, it's not going to be linear necessarily. Um, But it all starts actually with the assassination of Malcolm X in 1965 by a group of men who were believed to later travel to Washington, D.C. on January 18th of 1973 and to kill 10 members of the Hanafi sect staying in a house occupied by a man named Hamas Khalis and his wife Khadija and uh, a total of and 10 other family members, including children, grandchildren, and other relatives. Four years after this grisly murder, in March 9, 1977, Hamas Khalif and a band of well-trained armed men stormed three buildings in downtown D.C., a Jewish organization called the B'nai B'rith, a mosque, and the seat of D.C.'s own local government, and terrorized the city, for 36 hours. Now, uh, this case uh, finally came to the end, the siege came to an end, when unlikely figures became involved in brokering the end. And those figures included the actual ambassador of Iran, uh, the ambassador of Pakistan, and the ambassador of Egypt. This instance in 1977 is one of America's first recorded acts of domestic terrorism in the modern age. We go now to our conversation with Mark Tuohy and Pat Collins to learn more about the Hanafi Muslim siege. So Pat, as a covering a terrorist event is, is always a, an interesting thing for the press, but when this was ongoing, did you have any idea what Khalees' demands were? Oh yes, I was very vocal about mm-hmm. that. He'd call it in. Oh, yeah. He, he told that to all the TV stations, to anybody who would listen. He was very vocal. He wanted people to know why he was there. He wanted his justice. He wanted that movie stopped. I think he wanted $700 back. He was fined $700 for a contempt of court. There were some minor demands, I mean, right? he, yeah, he had these odd little requests or demands that he had. And, and Pat, you were physically, like both of you, what's so interesting is I can't imagine a situation now where they would let a prosecutor sort of get into the line of fire or where they would let a correspondent, although I think you take substantially more physical risks because of the nature of and competitiveness of the work that you're in, but it sounds like you were both, you know, could have easily been injured or killed during this process. 
I think it's great that prosecutors go to crime scenes. I think more should go to crime I scenes. I, I really did. do. As I, I was think a prosecutor, I always went to crime. I scenes. think a lot of prosecutors are too detached from what goes I did on get in the streets. A couple times. Yeah. I was with police, but yeah. the fire was not to me. It was to anybody around me in police car. But no, this uh, it was it was it was so it was so surreal. Surreal. You didn't know what was going to happen next. But if you thought that was surreal, you should have sat in the courtroom during the trial. Mm. Because it was a trial unlike any other trial you've ever seen. Because you had a mass who was represented by Judge Harry Toussaint Alexander. Very provocative judge. A bon vivant judge. Yeah. Well-dressed judge. Oh, yeah. And Hamas instructed his followers, although they had attorneys, not to talk to their own defense attorneys. They just sat there, mum. They made objections, but they didn't talk to them. They well, couldn't talk to them. So before the only- we get to that, let's pause, let's pause. Let's go back, because this is too exciting, and I don't want you to sort of bury the lead here. Is that the right term? It's one of them. Okay. But all at once, Chief Cullinane actually went in and negotiated. Cullinane uh, was with uh, Joe O'Brien and Earl Silbert and than the ambassadors. They were all involved, very importantly so. It was a wonderful team, but the trust that had been built up in prior years between the leaders of the police department and Collis was a major factor in being able to talk through, to talk to him, even though he was out of control and some stuff. Yeah, they they did a magnificent job. So this is a chief of police in the District of Columbia who's a D.C. native. This police chief, as I understand it, agreed to walk into Brene Brith, where there was a conference table established, and uh, without a weapon. Yeah. So, you know, he's not some pretty boy police chief, because he's so famous for a picture, and for his image as the nice person who liked all kinds of people, regardless of race or background. He had a a very, uh, in that time, he was a progressive uh, police leader, but he was was. not a, you know, he was not... um, glamorous and no. this was so this this police chief as i understand it not only did he take off his gun and go inside but he had asked two other deputy chiefs to go with him who refused and as he crested the door as it's been explained to me without his gun to meet with this frankly in that moment homicidal maniac the two chiefs had who had told him i am not going in there with you are you insane i'm not going i'm not going went in Went in with him. They did. Chief Rabe and uh, I'll think of the other one in a minute. Yeah, they did. They did. He led by example, and he uh, he's a major factor in the successful outcome here. It was a bold move by Colin. It's a bold move, and it helped bring this thing to a close and a relatively peaceful close in comparison to what it could have been. So what happened? The captors came out with their, how did that work, in all the different locations? Did they come out with their hands up? I'm trying to paint a visual. I want people Oh, I don't think they had their hands picture. up. I think they were in cuffs. I think they were cuffed. Um, and they were, they didn't come out in front of the press. They came out a different entrance into, into paddy wagons. I'm sure you were. Yeah. Did you <laughs> see them come out? I wasn't there. I was with the hostages. No. Okay. I did not see him. Uh, but they got him. But they, they, they were transported. Um, I believe they were transported to either central cell block or the cell block uh, below the courthouse. I think it was central cell block and uh, for, the, for the evening. And they were, they were brought to court at uh, 6 a.m. But the deal... Hamas wanted he he wanted to go home. He and did. He, and he did. did. Go, and he did go home. And how did he get there? Let's talk about that. Joe O'Brien. 
Joe Bryant literally drove him back to his house. Yes. Now, and what Cullinane did, though, he made sure that Hamas's home was sort of surrounded by cops. Oh, yeah. So, so once Hamas was there, <laughs> he was home. He had the comforts of home, but he wasn't. He couldn't leave. move. Yeah, he couldn't leave the property. Uh, they took him but he home. kept his word. He they, said he, he kept, would take yeah, him home. They took him home, and he came back in the morning. Um, and Judge Green convened the the the, uh, the hearing in front of a five or six hundred police. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, reporters and law enforcement people and forty marshals and et cetera. Um, and well, let me let me take you back because there's something, Pat. You've painted a lot, but. No magnetometers in the courthouse at this time. No metal detectors, right? No, that's not true. The uh, In the murder case, two years earlier, there was a special courtroom, a secure courtroom built on the second or third fl- second floor of Building A. Um, in the Which, by the way, for our listeners, is a tiny building. It's not big at all. Well, it's the, it's um, the traditional courthouse buildings in Washington for the Superior Court and the D.C. Courts were were three or four buildings plus the building museum, the pension building. Um, and several of those um, courts were specially designed for like arraignments or preliminary hearings that were a little larger. Uh, this one was specially built, reconstructed uh, for security purposes for the murder prosecutions of the, of the six men that killed Hamas's family. The same courtroom was used for this case. Um, wow. The same courtroom where mm-hmm. the people who had killed 10 of oh, his yeah. family members is where he stood to yeah. be tried. Now, the magnetometer issue, I don't remember. I, magnetometers were put in that court, outside of that courtroom then, um, and there was incredible security. I had to go through, we had to go through in the morning like three or four magnetometers to get into the to to get to the courtroom, um, and even even with police escorts, it was a and the, and the public it took forever to get people in the courtroom because there were a lot of security. And um, how in the heck could you even pick a jury at this point? I mean, I can only imagine. Talk about a case where we picked a jury. Uh, we had about three thousand prospective jurors in the well of the pension building. I'm sure that was comfortable. <laughs> and we we designed a questionnaire, which was in the early days of questionnaires. Um, and a jury, for our listeners who are uninitiated, jury questionnaire to make sure that they didn't have any pre-existing views of the case, that they could be fair, and, you know, intended to suss that out of them through a process of written questioning. Written questioning about their background, etc. The judge conducted the voir dire. And this was about, Judge Nunzio. Nunzio. It took about three or four days, as I recall, Pat. Uh, we had three or four days of... Uh, it went pretty quick. Um, and, of course, the obvious question is, the whole world knows what happened here. That's not the standard for a jury disqualification. It's not what you know. It's whether, based on what you know, you formed a decision without listening to the evidence. Can you be fair? Um, and there were people that said no. And yeah, there were. And I there was, a lot of them said that. If they I were honest, you know, I'm, I'm sure there were. I don't recall. I don't recall. Um, it was not as. It was not as time consuming as I thought it was going to be. I've had. I've had um, just as a parenthetically, I've tried a couple of six month criminal trials, on major cases where it took 
a week or 10 days to put a jury in the box. Sure. It didn't. Nunzio was very good. He, he said, you know, I understand you all have feelings. He made it very clear to the prospective jurors. You all know what happened, what you've read, what you've heard, many of you. Put that aside. Can you be fair? That was the issue. So we had a jury selection, took uh, that time, and then we went across the street to start the trial on May, May 9th. It was May 9th of 1977. So just 90 days later, you're, up to, you're in trial. Yeah, we had, we had to interview you know, hundreds of witnesses. There were witnesses that would refuse to be involved. Most of them did not, but there were, of course. Hundreds of witnesses. The, 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 the forensic team, we had about 20 forensic people, um, they had to um, do forensic tests on the weapons, and then they had to put all of the weapons in bulletproof containers to be wheeled into the courtroom, and they had these frame, A-frame, like an A-frame home, and then we had four of them, four or five of them with the garrots, with the throwing stars, shooting stars, with the shotguns, with the automatic rifles, with the pistols, with the bows and arrows, and the 15,000 rounds of ammunition. Um, it was a, quite an elaborate uh, choreographed situation with forensic, you know, forensic help. Um, and, uh, and then we had to deal with the wiretap evidence, which was a procedure all its own. But off we went. And Pat, you were there. I imagine you had yes. to sit there every single stinking day. And um, what was, was that riveting. like? Because you were sort of, you were practically, a wi- I mean, you were a, really a witness well, to this event. Now you're covering it again. Well, it was riveting, especially when you heard the tales of the people who were held hostage, mm. those that were beaten. Uh, it was uh, it was scary. Um, and I think um, bone-chilling to hear the testimony day in, day out about what happened in those 37, 38 hours during the siege. Uh, and again, it was, was surreal because these defendants are sitting there with their hands clasped, and they're not saying a word. And they're not even talking to their own lawyers. So they have lawyers that they're not even talking to. They're court-appointed lawyers. They were waiting for the signal. And they never got that. They never so, got you know, it. There was only one lawyer who really spoke for everybody, and that was uh, Harry uh, Alexander, who represented And you had some very good lawyers in the defense team. Um, there wasn't much of a defense. And was Marion Barry a witness? That's a very interesting story. <laughs> so how did that go? Of course, he was a victim. I mean, he got shot, right? He poked his head out of his office and he got plugged. Yeah, yeah. And he suddenly rockets to fame yeah, because he raises from his gurney... Says a few he words, got, he and got a shot. legend was born. He got shot, not seriously, but he got shot. Uh, he initially refused to um, to come down and be interviewed by homicide detectives. Um, so I called him, and I said, Marion, um, before you start, Mark, I was shot. I was shot, God damn it. I'm, I'm, I'm staying out of this. I said, Marion, don't go there. Don't go there, my friend. I was at the hospital when the doctor flipped the little piece out of your little piece of bullet out of your chest with his thumbnail. Don't go there. You don't have any choice. I do. I'm not going to come. I'll give you an hour to think about it, and I'll call you back. We so just he was under to... subpoena? At the time, he wasn't, no. City official, you don't have to subpoena him. He's a, vic- he's a witness. So I called him back in an hour. He said, I'm not, or the homicide guy says, he's not coming. I said, put him on the phone. I said, Mary, you're a trusted and respected civil servant. You're a witness to a terrible event. And you, and you just have to come. I'm not coming. Okay. It's Friday afternoon. It's about 3 o'clock. 
I'm going to walk down the hall into Judge Nunzio's chambers, and I'm going to get a material witness arrest warrant. Now, let me tell you what's going to happen, Marion. It'll be served on you in the next hour. It's Friday afternoon. Should I remind you? At 4 o'clock. They will take you into custody. The next time you'll talk to anybody from the cell will be Monday morning at 6.30 when they bring you up to court. It's your call. It's a little heavy-handed there, Mark. <laughs> Pat, did you know any of this was going on? Uh, no. Okay, so did what, how did he, he finally... He, he cooperated. Mary cooperated. But it was very interesting when you walked into the courtroom. I said, uh, you know, the marshals will escort you into the bathroom. No, I'm going to the front door. Well, there's a problem with that. There is a well, well, the court's sealed off permanently for this trial. I'll get over it. So Marion comes into the courtroom. He starts sh- walking down, shaking hands. <laughs> You're talking about yeah. in the gallery yeah. where the spectators are, where he, Pat's probably a, a consummate future mayor. I, <laughs> I loved Marion Barry. He was great in so many ways for the city, especially in his early years. But I, I, I knew him all his life. I mean, all his professional life in the council because I was here. And I liked him. He was a character. Do you think? <laughs> Judge Nunzio said, um, excuse me, uh, Councilmember Barry, uh, this is not a social hour. Please come take your seat. So he shook a few more hands, gets up on his hand, jumps over the barrier, and walks up to take a stand. He was fine as a witness. And this was before, you know, this was before he sort of stumbled and had the issues with crack addiction that, you know, frankly afflicted him probably for the rest of his life. It did afflict him because his Um, first term as mayor, as Pat knows, he was very important to the city. And and he's always been important, but he got into some issues with personal stuff. But uh, God bless him. Um, The city is lucky for him having been here, in my view. I liked him. But but that, we couldn't fool around with this. He was a material witness because the shooting was set out in the indictment. You know, he was assault with intent to kill. It had to be proven, right? But you know what? Everything's the theater for him. Did you watch this? Do you remember oh, this yes, part? Yeah. So what, what's, what's your characterization of it, Pat? I think, uh, you know, he was a good witness. I, everybody who got on that stand had a horror story to tell. I mean, even though Marion Barry, maybe the wound wasn't as, as serious as, uh, as some people thought it was. Thank God uh, it wasn't serious. But it was, uh, nonetheless, when, some, when somebody points a gun at you and, and you get wounded, uh, it's, it's serious to you. And, and the stories people told, I mean, were, again, were riveting, bone-chilling. I mean, there were days I had goosebumps just listening to the tales of horror from that siege. It so, was an incredible trial. I've covered, God, hundreds of trials, hundreds of trials. And that's one I'll remember for a long, long time. So even though this wasn't a modern live streaming news era, there was still a lot of live updates from this event. And this was also a time when terrorism isn't quite the watchword that it is today. Do you have any sense what the public's reaction was to all of this coming in through their radios and through their TVs, you know, happening possibly right down the street from them? Oh, I think the uh, public was stunned by what was going on. You know, can I go to work tomorrow? What streets are closed? Who are these people? You know, not everybody was up on the murders at the Hanafi house that had occurred years before. Why can't I go to work? Why can't my kids go um, to school? Why is this road closed? Uh, What is going on? I think people... Could I be next? Yeah, and people, I think, we, we were live streaming. But we were on your TV. We did not go off the air. You know, back in those days, it's hard to believe now. I think we went off at midnight. You know, they'd play the national anthem. We would end our <laughs> broadcast day. Hard to believe. 
But I think, if I'm not mistaken, a lot of the TV stations would go off around midnight and then come back on around maybe five or six in the morning. And That's but, right. but not during this. We were on around the clock, and they had and and there's no automation back then. We had full TV crews, not only at each scene, but back in the studio. We had anchors standing by in case something would break. We did cut-ins. It, it, everybody was on edge because we didn't know what was going to happen next. Did the national news really pick this up? Can you, oh, yeah. So the there national was no news CNN. was all over There this. was no oh, But the networks MSNBC, were there. Right? Yeah, and actually life was a lot better. Oh, New York Times had a report <laughs> every day. They reported on it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was front page in the New York Times, Chicago, Chicago Sun, L.A. Times, all over the country because it was a, the first in those days, you know, terrorist incident. And all of the defendants were convicted and sentenced yes. for assault, for felony murder. Well, no. Murder. Felony murder, the, the three defendants at the district building who were involved in the shooting, uh, and then we wanted to get Hamas. Uh, we, Hamas ordered this whole operation, so that's why the wiretap evidence was very important. In fact, it was an interesting situation. I don't know if you remember Vinnie Alto, Pat, great old trial lawyer, um, at the U.S. Attorney's Office of Justice, and he, he taught me, he was gone, he was over at Maine Justice, I think, then, but he taught me how to do this um, um, wiretap uh, presentation. I had eight witnesses on the stand simultaneously. Remember that? Simultaneously. Uh, and one witness talked about relevance, one witness chain of custody, another witness this and that. And so the wiretap evidence is what convicted, what the ju- persuaded the jurors to convict Hamas of the murder, felony murder. Um, so Hamas and the um, three defendants at the district building were all convicted of felony murder. The rest of the defendants were all convicted of multiple counts of kidnapping, assault, intent to kill, and the like. And do you think that today, in a post-9-11 world where we are much more aware of terrorism and domestic terrorism, and there's been a greater expansion of legal powers and of intelligence authorities, would the trial have played out in a similar way, or would there have been substantial differences if it happened in the modern day? Well, look at the trials of the of the World Trade Center, uh, the first World Trade Center bombing in uh, in Manhattan. Uh, Kevin Duffy was an old friend who was the judge in that case, and it was very similar in terms of security and but and the other terror. There have been a couple of other terrorist trials, and they've all been handled very appropriately. And in the same way, my personal opinion, if this happened today, the cops would have rushed into the Ben Breath and they would have killed every one of those hostage takers as soon as they could get through the door. Because we've changed our strategy on how we yep. deal with terrorism and hostage takers. And so there probably wouldn't have been a trial. That's, that's a good point. And so let's give some historical context, too, from the legal side and sort of the media side here. First of all, this happened before the church committee had even sat down to look at things, and Pike Commission Mm -hmm. had looked at things um, uh, about the weather underground was missing in action at this time. Had they gone underground at this point? Because they didn't surface until the 80s, right? 80s, yeah. so, and that those cases were ultimately dismissed because the wiretaps were somehow faulty. Um, and we've talked about that in other podcasts. Uh, 9-11 had not happened. Reagan had um, not been shot. Yeah. 
So this was possibly the first large-scale incident of domestic terrorism to really break through to the national consciousness I, in I the think modern it was. age. Absolutely was. I can't remember one before this. Yep. I mean, I don't even think we used the word terrorism before we got to this terrorism. I know. So what Not was the decision? Known. There was a decision made to use the word terrorism for this siege? I, you know, I don't even know. I have to go back and look at my stories. I don't know if we used the word terrorism. Well, we, we would certainly use it today. I think oh, sure. I mean, I think it was the first big act of terrorism in our city, I, if not the country. I, I just don't remember whether the media reported it as a terrorism incident right away, but we certainly felt it was. And, you know, we'd have meetings, you know, Earl Silver and my co-counsel, Marty Linsky, was a great lawyer. Um, you know, we, we would refer to it as a I'd terrorism. like to go back. I should have to go back and look at the clip. I want you to. I'll tell you, my wife sure as hell thought it was a terrorist incident when they arrested a guy who had just purchased silencers and grenades to kill my children. Oh, wow. Two blocks from my house. That was during the 1977? Trial. During, during the, the trial. trial. And, they, and they were threatened to kill Oral Silbert's kids and Marty Linsky's kids. And um, I was advised after the trial day finished, I think. Yeah, because they, they didn't want to cause mm-hmm. any emotional reaction. But my wife was seeing patients, and they, they wouldn't let her drive home and picked her up. Um, my kids, um, who loved every minute of this because there were police cars in front of the house and back of the house for, <laughs> for two weeks, um, we had marshals living in the house, and Joel O'Brien picked me up every morning at 5 a.m., and got, I got home about midnight. It went on for, went on for uh, till the end of the trial. So terrorism meant something more than just the trial. Fascinating stuff. How deeply do you think that that changed MPD in their approach to crime in the city? I don't know, Pat, well, you, you, you covered a lot of police actions. What do you think? Uh, you know, I, I can't point to... Uh, and the only thing I can say is that after this, I think they put a lot more emphasis on intelligence. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, the, you know, they had more cops worried about intelligence and, and who might be capable of things like this. You know, that's one of the biggest, uh, I think, advantages the cops have had in this city. Over the years, they've managed to get a lot of what I call street intelligence from various gangs or criminal activity or people who were threats in one way or the other. And and they've developed strategies to, to get them off the street before anything really bad happens. And I think because of this, uh, they started to really accelerate and accentuate their intelligence activities. And and so did it change, did it make our city safer? I'm sure it did for a number of different reasons. Oh, yeah, it's a very sophisticated uh, uh, intelligence process. Now, during the World Bank um, meetings in 2002 or three, um, when we had the mass demonstrations, mm-hmm. Um, and arrests were made. Uh, I know that because I represented the chief of police for nine years in that case. Chief Ramsey um, was finally resolved. But the ability, even more enhanced today, for the police to gather information from AI, informants, and whatnot, is, it goes, goes right to the heart of fighting terrorism, right to the heart of it. Oh, absolutely. They they have ways, uh, and some have been challenged, you know, I think, where they've infiltrated certain groups mm-hmm. to get intelligence and, and to try to ward off violence, you know, before it happens. Absolutely right. 
as it turns out, uh, Hamas Khalis, do I have his name, Khalis? Hamas, Hamas Mr. McGee. Abdul Khalis. Yeah, okay. Um, he went to federal prison. Uh, at some point, there, there were, he went to federal prison. Um, I imagine he was originally sent to, and I've done some research on this, so bear with me, something that was then called Lorton Reformatory. Used to be the city's jail. Yeah. And, it, and it was a place where you could have things like conjugal visits and all sorts of There's a whole history of this crazy place, which is now closed. But where did they send him? Because they sent him somewhere else. The Metropolitan Corrections Complex in Chicago. And then after a few years, he was sent to the to the Butler uh, Medical Facility. Butner, uh, right, Butner, in North yeah. Carolina, yeah. where he has died uh, and, and as an old man. Mr. Kalis uh, uh, was actually in his 50s when this case was tried, as I understand it. And his followers um, were young, mostly younger cab drivers. Yes. Whom he had literally brainwashed. Yep. Um, and uh, they were all convicted, never communicated with their lawyers, probably uh, really didn't give themselves the opportunity to present, you know, maybe a defense that they might have had or did they test it? Did they, did they try to get a lower sentence? Did anybody step up for them or did they just go down like soldiers? I think all of their lawyers spoke at sentencing. And the, my recollection that the lawyers all turned to Hamas and said, he's responsible for this brainwashing. Okay. Um, Pat, you you were man about town. You've continued to work for a number. You came to this job in the first place from print, right? Right. I imagine they pay more in television than they did in print. No. Well, that and my newspaper folded, so... Well, there's that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I started when the murder happened at the Hanafi house. I was at the Daily News. And when the takeover uh, happened, uh, I was at Channel 9. And this, this remains to you one of the more significant, both things, the murder and the, the, the trial, or one of the more significant events you've covered in your career. Absolutely. I think it's one of the uh, more uh, horrific historic points in our city. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and, and Mark, uh, you know, just this is a small town at the end of the day. You lived on 16th Street. You're around the corner from the house where the murders occurred. Frankly, you're still there. Um, you've gone on to do all sorts of things, which we'll include, but you've uh, you've really had an interesting career, and you've really served the local government in, in a lot of you know incredible ways. You've been a real um, a real genuine Washingtonian lawyer. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's a pretty high compliment. But um, I, I haven't had either one of you describe Callis physically. Uh, Pat, would you feel more comfortable with that? Mark, that might be a little awkward, but it's up no, to you. No, go okay. ahead, Pat. Let's just do uh, well, that very quickly, and he, then he I'll, a, we'll do our cast He down. was about 6'3", six, 6'2", six, six, uh, bulk, you know, an imposing presence. Um, beard, always wore a, a hat. A kofi. He kofi. wore a kofi. And sort of a robe. Some sort of salwar kameez or just sort of a, a dashiki? Dashiki. I mean, he wasn't walking around in, uh, in, in blue jeans and loafers. Uh, he was dressed, he, he dressed in accordance with what he believed uh, he should dress. Uh, but he was an imposing man. Yeah, and when they came in, what were they all wearing? What was he wearing when they were holding the hostages, and what were the other captors under his direction? They were wearing? in, a, it was sort of a military dress. It was like dark clothing. Um, it wasn't button-down shirts. It was like... A, if you took a priest's collar and take the collar off, that's what it looked like, as I recall. They were they were they were dressed in, in, in you know some jackets, but it wasn't. It, you could tell it was a sect of people. They were all kind of dressed similar. 
The only thing I remember about him uh, were his eyes. What do you remember about his yeah, eyes? There was fire in his eyes. You know, when you talk to, uh, to someone who is driven, there is something about their eyes that sort of burned through you, and I think he had that sort of fire. In my recollection, Pat, he testified. He testified at his trial. Let me tell you something. Um, I don't believe it exists. I know three or four writers who have contacted me over the years who have tried, and I've talked to the clerk of the court. I think the transcript vanished. I don't mean stolen. It just vanished. Wouldn't surprise me. Look how much time is going by. I mean, my God. I know. Sometimes I know. it's hard to get what happened yesterday. I'm not done. Yeah. All right. Uh, Mark and Pat, this, is, this has been incredible. I want to thank you for coming in. Um, this has really been an important episode of National Security Law today, and I can't imagine uh, that we could have done better than to find the two of you uh, to discuss this with us. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in tonight. You can find links to the Black Letter Law and articles on today's topics at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity and in the notes to this podcast. You can also drop us a note at NationalSecurity at AmericanBar.org, on Twitter at ABANatSec, or on our Facebook page. We welcome your feedback. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy. Thank you.